Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is a bonus pod, though, so it's a little different than the other episodes. It doesn't have the opening segment where it's been me and Brittany and Sam uh, talking about the news. It also doesn't have the traditional shout-outs at the end. This is an interview, an interview that's a little more in-depth than some of the others. Before we get to the interview, I'll say three things. First is a piece of advice. So I used to be a sixth grade math teacher. I taught sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn to incredible uh, students. You know, it's funny. They're like old now. I like, I was at Howard. I was at Colgate and I ran into some of my former students. They're like 18, 19 years old. That is so wild. It's when I see one of my students on um, Instagram, Pedro, Pedro, if you're listening, you are incredible, but Pedro never wore his glasses. And it's funny when I see him on Instagram every single time I want to write a comment that's like, where are your glasses? Do you have on your glasses, Pedro? Um, they were incredible. Now I taught 90 and 120 minute classes. And one day my students wanted to go to gym. And I remember being like, guys, we got work to do. And I let them go anyway. And I remember they came back really quickly and I was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you back? I thought you wanted to go to gym. And what I realized is that they were actually in love with the idea of gym more than they were in love with the work of gym. And I say that because in this moment, I think there are people who are more in love with the idea of resistance than the work of resistance. And my push to you would be to think about how you are a bridge between the idea and the work. The thinking about what a new world should be is an unnecessary and important part of the work it is. Pushing that world to actually come into being is also important. So don't be more in love with the idea than the work. The second is Happy Mother's Day to every mother out there and everyone who has filled in and been a surrogate mother and helped people believe in themselves when they didn't believe in themselves. Now, I don't often talk about Mother's Day, and it's always been a weird day for me to celebrate because my father raised us. I've said before, both my parents were addicted to drugs, when I was younger, my mother left when I was three. My father raised us and my great-grandmother and grandmother and grandfather. And uh, as I've gotten older, you know, my mother came back into my life when I was around 30. So like a year and a half ago. And I've been thinking about what it means to rebuild a relationship. And I have talked to myself about the importance of that to me um, just because I, I want to. And my commitment for this Mother's Day is to start writing again and to write to my mother. That's my commitment. So I'm going to do that. And I wanted to give a shout out to incredible uh, people. So first is my sister. My sister's name is Tere. I hope one day she'll take me up in the offer to come to the pod because she's awesome. I think everybody should meet her. And uh, she is an incredible mother. She has two kids. Uh, I have my niece and my nephew who are awesome. And it's funny because sometimes I have to remind them, like, I knew her first. She is my sister first. <laughs> Uh, but she's a great mom. So I want to give her a shout out for Mother's Day. 
And the second is to Robin, who has been an incredible mentor, uh, support, friend, and mother figure uh, who helps guide uh, the way. The third is about the interview. So this is a bonus pod because I'm having a conversation with Edward Snowden. We said that we were going to have this conversation on Twitter a long time ago when we tweeted about uh, wanting to set up a, a conversation and we set it up. And here it is. Now, the main reason we're having this conversation is because I had questions and there were things that I was curious about. And I believe that when we have questions, we should ask them. So here we are. I hope that I've asked some of the questions that you had too. And I hope that you come away from this conversation thinking about some things a little differently. Here we go. Ed, I am, you know, this is serendipitous timing that we are finally having the conversation that we had said we were going to have a long time ago. Uh, And thank you for being able to talk. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I, I do think this is really kind of an extraordinary moment with everything that's going in. Uh, right now, but uh, since we have so many listeners with us, uh, I, I, I'd love to hear what what happened yesterday. I'm asking you. You know, I found out like everybody else. I I saw on my phone that Comey apparently was fired while he was talking to FBI agents uh, and thought it was a joke, and then was taken into a room, had a phone call with Trump, and then realized that he was no longer the director of the FBI. I saw your tweet that said something like, "Even though he's been trying to lock me up." that you think that this is still dangerous. What did you mean by that? Yeah, the idea here is we have the director of the FBI, uh, who is traditionally appointed for a 10-year term. Uh, and this was a, a very intentional decision in the wake of, uh, you know, Hoover, uh, who ran the FBI for about 50 years, right? Uh, he had an extraordinary influence in American politics. He ran the agency like his own personal tyranny at the FBI, uh, he spied on civil rights leaders, uh, everybody, you know, uh, whether it's uh, the Black Panthers Party, whether it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, sending threatening letters, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary historic abuses. And because of that, they wanted to make the FBI director serve a term long enough uh, to be very effective, right, to, to learn the operations of the Bureau and to insulate them from the changing of political administration. So the longest presidents can serve is, of course, eight years if he's reelected. An FBI director is now appointed for a 10-year term. Uh, We've only ever had one FBI director fired before, uh, and it was because the FBI director uh, was implicated in a very serious ethics scandal. Uh, We've never had an FBI director uh, fired for what appears to be a, a fairly transparent political purpose. And so when I look at this uh, as an American, right, we don't need to canonize uh, Jim Comey here, uh, the the FBI director who was just uh, fired. Uh, He is not, you know, the the most wonderful champion of truth, justice and light in the United States. Uh, This is a guy who oversaw, for example, uh, the surveillance operations against the Black Lives Matter movement, which you should know uh, about uh, quite intimately, uh, because I believe you were at. Uh, the events in Baltimore, where the FBI was flying a surveillance plane over it. I myself uh, have been hunted by this guy uh, for years and years on account of my political activities. He wants to jail me for them. Uh, He wants to charge whistleblowers in the United States under laws uh, that provide no opportunity to defend yourself in court. You can't tell the, the jury why you did what you did. And despite this, right, uh, despite all the bad that has come 
uh, from the policies of this guy, which are actually fairly typical of every FBI director. The FBI is typically not what we would consider a sterling defender of individual liberties in the United States. The idea that the president should be firing the man that is in charge of investigations into his administration or his administration's ties to other organizations, affiliations, and contacts is a very dangerous precedent to set in our democracy. I think it's destabilizing. I think it's quite negative. And it's fairly extraordinary uh, that when people ask, you know, the, the Trump administration why they went ahead with this, uh, because uh, the reaction has been immediate uh, and, and furious from all sides of the spectrum, even senior Republican leaders are, are condemning this kind of thing. They go, well, we didn't expect it would be a big deal. How can that be? Or what do you make of the the investigation into the Russian interference uh, and the relationship between that and the firing? Do you think that the investigation will move forward? Do you think that it is uh, severely compromised at this point? Do you think that Comey will uh, still testify before Congress? Like, what what do you think will be the fallout from this with regard to the investigation about Trump's relationship with Russia and the interference? So the reporting that we got uh, out of the news yesterday uh, was that this uh, firing of the FBI director was in no way related to the Russian investigation, uh, which seems just facially deceptive. I mean, absolutely nobody believes this. But that is the, the pretense that's provided. Instead, they say they're, they're almost uh, defending the honor of the Democratic Party uh, and uh, Jim Comey's activities last year, particularly his statement on Hillary Clinton's uh, emails and the investigation right before the election, uh, says it was unprecedented, says he jumped the chain of command. Uh, be that as it may, uh, maybe, maybe he did, maybe that was uh, a terrible decision to make. It is now being reported today, and this is on the, the 10th of May, that just a few weeks ago, James Comey approached uh, the, I believe, Deputy Attorney General, the man who ultimately fired him or recommended that he be fired, uh, and Rosenstein. asked particularly for more resources to commit to the Russia investigation. So how can it be uh, that this uh, FBI director, uh, who has a long history of speaking independently for better or worse, right, to the detriment of both parties, uh, suddenly uh, approaches the deputy attorney general, uh, correct me on that one if it's the, the wrong title for this guy, uh, says we need more resources for the Russian investigation, then goes to the Senate, the Congress starts briefing that he's asked for these additional resources, trying to accelerate the investigation, uh, and then within a matter of a few short weeks, the president gets a recommendation from this same guy that the FBI director should be fired, uh, that he should be cut loose. And the president immediately acts on this, right? The attorney general sort of immediately acts on this. The Department of Justice immediately acts on this. You know, I worked in many different agencies of government. I worked for the CIA. I worked for the NSA. Uh, anybody who's worked in the federal government can tell you nothing ever happens quickly. When they take uh, substantive decisions, uh, there are long, extraordinary meetings. Uh, there are lengthy deliberations. There are papers and memos that are written, you know, that, that go into the hundreds of pages. And they're saying instead of all of that, instead of the traditional model that we go through, particularly uh, such a controversial, weighty decision like this, uh, they did it on the basis of a three-page memo that simply summarizes news reports and said, this guy's got to get out of here. He's got to get out of here right now. He can't spend another night in his office, what could possibly be so urgent when the activities that they're saying they're firing him for actually happened last year? 
Right. No, I, you know, the FBI visited my house right before the conventions, right before the Republican convention this year. And I wasn't home, but they left like a business card that was like, DeRay, please call me when you get a chance. And as you said, the FBI has surveilled uh, the movement in the past couple of years. Uh, I remember being in, in the protests in Baltimore, uh, which is home, and they were there. And, and so I'm no defender of the FBI, especially given the, as you noted, the the history with the Panthers, Cointelpro, King, the whole civil rights movement. Uh, but like you said, this is shocking uh, that he was fired so abruptly. Now, people have been saying that the Russian interference is overblown, right? That like that's, and the White House came out today I don't know if you saw, but one of the deputy press secretaries came out and essentially said that we need to move on, right? That like Comey's gone, they're going to restore faith to the FBI and that people have been making too much fuss about the interference. We're going to move off of this topic in a second. There's a lot of other questions, a lot of other things we can talk about, but I wanted to know your take on that. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a really politically charged topic for a lot of people. People have strong opinions both ways. Uh, but the way to do this is, look, we got to set the politics aside. We got to set the parties aside. You know, there can't be red team, blue team on this and go when we have uh, controversies of so significant political importance in the United States. How do we resolve them? Uh, we resolve them by going to process right through process of investigation, of finding the facts, establishing them in a nonpartisan way where we can go, look, this is no longer uh, we, we can dispel this atmosphere of allegation and conspiracy, crystallize the facts, and then immediately establish accountability based on what actually happened. The way to do this is through meaningful investigation. And I think that's exactly the reason that this sets off the firestorm that it does. People, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, uh, can appreciate the need for facts. Uh, and rather than if this was an attempt uh, to derail the investigation, which by all public evidence that we have right now, uh, that appears to be the case, uh, I think it has been a tremendous strategic mistake on the part of the White House because this is only going to make people more interested. Uh, this is only going to make the investigation uh, more necessary. And I, I, I think we've got to get to the facts. If there was ever a need for an investigation before, it's only greater now. So, Ed, let's take a step sure. back a little bit. We are talking over Google Hangouts right now. Do you use a cell phone? <laughs> no, I don't. This is this is one of the ironic things about living uh, the, the sort of life I do. By the way, I would not recommend uh, Google Hangouts for secure or private communications. Uh, I only do this for conversations that are going to be public anyway, uh, because unfortunately that same FBI we've been talking about and unusually uh, – defending sort of the honor of here, which is uh, not a typical occasion for me, uh, they have a warrant uh, against me. And so they get copies of all of our conversations that take place on Hangouts. Uh, and I think that's a sad thing, but that's simply the, the way things are. It's similar for uh, using a cell phone. So you would, I, I think I saw an interview recently where you were questioning the security of online cloud platforms like Google Drive and Dropbox and things like that. Did I read that correctly or am I misrepresenting that? Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Uh, I was giving a, uh, a talk at the OpenStack conference. Now, this was not sort of a general audience talk, uh, so it was difficult for reporters to, to really uh, follow, I think. But the idea here was that this is for the people who actually build the infrastructure uh, that runs these services around the Internet today. Uh, when somebody wants to start a new website uh, at scale, like 
a giant website, not an itty-bitty website. Uh, they no longer typically get their own servers, put them in a data center, try to code these things and stand them up. Uh, they will simply pay uh, some company that runs a big data center like Google or Amazon to basically rent them a slice of their servers. Uh, this is a, a, a scheme that's called infrastructure as a service. Uh, the problem is all of these organizations, uh, particularly Amazon and Google, are known to cooperate uh, with governments that come and knock on the door and say, hey, look, we need to know uh, what these people are doing. And in some cases, this is entirely justifiable, right? They're looking for uh, some kind of cyber criminal or they're looking for some kind of uh, terrorist. Nobody opposes that, right? There, there's no objection there. Uh, but this is done in, in many countries under many jurisdictions. And as long as they say, or we uh, adhere to all applicable laws, they're saying basically as long as we can get a court order uh, stamped by somebody, whether it's in uh, China or North Korea or Russia or the United States or France or Germany, uh, as long as a judge says by our laws this is illegal, uh, they'll start to pass these things over. Uh, the conference that I was speaking at was a bunch of technologists who are trying to move this from uh, this paradigm where we're reliant upon these big Google and Amazon types to where people can once again run their own infrastructure freely. Uh, you can copy the actual system code, right? We call it source code uh, that runs these platforms. Uh, you can modify it. You can see how it works. You know everything that's going on with it. It's yours. You, the user, uh, become the owner. You control everything rather than uh, dealing with a future where it's much like renting, right? We've got landlords for the Internet. Uh, that is a less free future, I think, uh, than what we should be aiming for. Now, you talk about these open platforms. You, you talk about not using Google Hangout for secure communications. What do you use or, or what would you tell activists and organizers to use for secure communications? Uh, so there are a lot of uh, different guides that talk about what to do, particularly if you're involved in activism or security or concerned about these kind of things. If you go to protests, uh, right, you need to be thinking about this. You can search for articles uh, just by writing, you know, Edward Snowden and uh, privacy tips. But broadly, immediately, like if you're listening to this right now and you have an iPhone uh, or you're on uh, Android, you can just go to the App Store and you can type in Signal Messenger, right? Uh, this is considered the gold standard right now for security. Uh, you can send any kind of file back and forth, whether it's a PDF, uh, you know, whether it's a, a video, whether it's a picture, uh, you don't need to know all these different identifiers as long as you just got somebody's phone number. Uh, the downside with this is if you don't want to share your phone number, if you don't want people to be able to call you, you either got to get a secondary one, right, by uh, registering a, a burner number through one of these apps uh, that allow you to get those, or uh, use a similar uh, encrypted end-to-end -end encrypted messenger. Uh, we're not talking like Facebook Messenger here. We're not talking like Google Allo. Uh, something like this. There's another one called Wire app uh, that's fairly well regarded. Now, the important thing is, remember, is just using a messenger uh, won't keep you safe from everyone. What this does is this makes it impossible to target you through what we call mass surveillance. This is the laziest but most common kind of surveillance. 
that everybody is doing right now. Your internet service provider is doing it. Your telecommunications company, right? Your AT&T or Verizon guy is doing it. Your Comcast is doing it. Your government's doing it. Every other government in the world, ones you don't like, ones you don't like or don't trust, they're also doing it. If you use an end-to-end encrypted messenger, right, where the Google or the Facebook doesn't have the keys to unlock your conversations, this is uh, more secure than the default, which is sending an SMS or making a phone call. If you use Signal Messenger uh, and you make a phone call, it's encrypted. You can't tell the difference. Uh, call is the same quality, but it's encrypted. Nobody can hear it but the person you're talking to. You send a message through Signal. You send a picture through Signal. Uh, it's encrypted. Now, I've not read you talk about race much. Uh, I know when we had our last talk on Twitter, we talked about it a little bit. But I'd love to know, how do you think about the relationship between race and security, race and surveillance, uh, race and activism? Uh, what did you either learn while you were... Uh, the years that you've been um, sort of away from the country or, or since the protests began. I just love to hear you talk about your understanding of race in this moment. You know, this is a great question. It's an important one because we don't talk about it enough, uh, particularly in politics, because largely when we're talking about race, uh, we're talking about minority groups, right? Uh, whether they're religious minorities, whether they're racial minorities, whether they're vulnerable populations uh, in, in one segment of society or another, uh, it's all talking about power imbalance at the core, right? It's easy for one reason or another, even if it's something as simple as skin color, to uh, start creating divisions in society, uh, in our communities, and go, there's an us and a them. Uh, and the people who look like us, who talk like us, who believe like us, uh, who live like us, we're going to look out for them. But these other people, right, they're not like us. They're different. And this is one of the central challenges in the surveillance uh, movement, right, uh, when we're trying to reform surveillance, is people go, well, I don't care because people aren't looking for me, right? Uh, they're looking for someone who may be Arabic, right? Uh, or they're looking for somebody uh, in a heavily policed community in Baltimore, right? In a white neighborhood who happens to be black and, you know, they're out after dark. So people uh, like police officers go, oh, that person, they probably don't belong here. Right? It's these snap judgments, these silent prejudices that get baked into our, the fabric of our belief system and eventually uh, creates this dynamic where we go, all right, we'll create these extraordinary policing powers, this doesn't matter whether we're talking about policing violence, right, uh, whether we're talking about uh, arrests, whether we're talking about court sentencing, or whether we're talking about surveillance capabilities that are primarily used uh, in minority or impoverished neighborhoods. A greater level of power is established and then selectively applied. You never see these powers uh, being used against the most privileged members of society, right? Bill Gates uh, doesn't have the FBI coming after him, leaving cards on his door that say, hey, can you give us a call? We just want you to know we're watching, basically. Very, very polite uh, warning. Thank you, FBI. Because he can enforce his interests. He can enforce his rights. He can actually reshape the boundaries of rights in a society. He can reshape the statutes and the laws within our society by using his access to resources, his access to power. But if you're in those minority groups, 
you feel these powers applied against you. You see them, right? You see a neighbor who gets arrested. Uh, you see somebody uh, who it, it can be something simple, right? We don't have to be talking about these great powerful things. They just don't catch the breaks that other people do. There's not quite the level playing field. And at the same time that they suffer from these disadvantages, they lack access to the power uh, and the influence to actually seek a redress of those grievances, right? To actually try to level the playing field again. So when I talk about this is central to the surveillance reform movement, people might be going, well, well why, right? Uh, and the problem is in the United States, it's not enough just to have majority support for position. You have to actually have a pretty commanding majority to be able to force the government to make a change. And the problem is if the government is clever enough about how it violates people's rights, uh, if they're careful enough to only target people who are uh, disenfranchised or disempowered, you will never have majority support uh, for reforming those positions until there's a majority awareness of them. But the only people who can speak uh, and illustrate that these injustices are occurring are the them in the us versus them. They don't look like the majority, they don't speak like the majority because they don't belong to the majority. And because of that, it becomes very difficult to effectuate change. But if I could turn this around, uh, you know, I always see this from the outside because I'm a member of that majority, right? Uh, I'm a white guy. Uh, I don't have the elite education, uh, but I've lived a pretty comfortable, pretty privileged life, right? I worked for the CIA. I got through all their polygraphs. I got the top secret clearance. I worked at the NSA. I worked you know, undercover overseas. Uh, I was the government's inside insider, right? I looked like I was supposed to look. I talked how I was supposed to talk. You, on the other hand, had this pretty extraordinary journey. You were born into, uh, you know, uh, a minority community. You, you've seen this from the inside, but you also had this radical departure where, you know, I worked for the NSA, the CIA, and suddenly uh, now rather than working for the government, I work for the public. Uh, you were an educator out where, where was it, like uh, Minneapolis? And then suddenly you're driving out to Ferguson and your life changed. Talk a little about how that is for you, how you see these issues. Yeah, I think that, so it's interesting to hear you talk about race. And I think you're right in many ways, this conversation about surveillance uh, rarely directly addresses the issue of race in, in, the, in the public, uh, though we know that marginalized communities have always been targeted disproportionately. And this notion that you talk about that it is uh, a government strategy to target the most marginalized people because of the lack of institutional power that they have. You know, as somebody in this situation, I'm being sued, had three federal lawsuits against me, and, you know, the FBI visited the House, and, and we'll see what it looks like under Sessions, is that I'm hopeful that we will have more public conversations about what security and safety look like so that people just know how to protect themselves better. You know, it wasn't until I, it wasn't until the protest began that I started to understand what signal was, right? Or what does it mean to use cloud sources when people might be hacking in or somebody hacked into my cell phone and used two-factor authentication uh, to take over my cell phone. Like they called Verizon, got my PIN number changed. It was like a whole ordeal and it took me a couple hours to get wow. access to my cell phone again. So those things are like up in front and I am just one of many people for whom that has happened. So, I, you know, I think you're, I think you're right in that sense. I, 
I'm interested too to think about you know you un, you named your privilege right you're a white man privileged white man you worked in the highest echelon of the security um, apparatus in America is what is the responsibility of people with privilege to work towards equity with regard to race and justice like how do you understand your responsibility in this frame I think the best definition of uh, privilege is that you don't need to think about these things. They don't confront you. You don't see them unless you go looking for them. And so I I think the beginning of that conversation and really the the best value to have there is to care, is to look, is to look for the divisions, is to look for the differences and be thoughtful about what you can do. And if you have an opportunity, if you have the power, apply that. Uh, Because everybody is a minority in some context, right? Uh, It's very easy and I I, I think quite alluring for people to look at the fact that, uh, you know, oh, I'm a a white guy, I'm this, that. And you go, this guy has all the breaks. And they do relative to something else, right? Uh, But if that guy also happens to be Jewish or something like that, uh, there are contexts and political contexts and things like that where this suddenly becomes a disadvantage. But because they don't think about the fact that other people have it even worse, right, it becomes so self-interested. It becomes uh, solipsistic where they're the only thing that matters in the world that they don't think about the fact it doesn't have to be like this for everybody if we show some solidarity for those who are truly at the bottom of the rung of privilege, right? And if we can bring them up, we're not lowering ourselves, right? This doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Uh, this can actually be making things better for everybody because we're bettering ourselves as a society. We're bettering ourselves as a system. We're creating an ideology of fairness uh, to the best of human capability. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 
and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Now, one of the things that's been the most interesting as I have learned more about you over the past three years is that, and I think that, that your unlikely defense of Comey in this moment is an example of it, is that you don't seem to be someone who is arguing for the end of government. Right? There are some people who you get lumped together with that seem to be directly pushing for the government apparatus to come crumbling down. And you, in some instances, have uh, argued for a state that is you know, robust and equitable and just, a state, though, that doesn't infringe on people's personal security or privacy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because there are a lot of people, when we first uh, had a conversation on Twitter, there were a lot of people who pushed me and said, DeRay, like he's trying to destroy America and like he doesn't believe in the government and we need the government for certain instances. And then you come out and say that Comey shouldn't be fired, which seems to be that you actually do believe in an apparatus, just an apparatus that has a process and, and focuses on justice and equity. Can you help me understand uh, the dissonance there that some people have? Yeah, I mean, the the easiest way to look at this is you got to remember what people have heard. Uh, I embarrassed the most powerful members of government in the United States, the most senior intelligence official uh, that we have uh, or had at the time I came forward in June of 2013, uh, was Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. Uh, he was a general, right? Uh, and he gave false testimony under oath on camera in front of the Senate. Everybody in America saw it. Every journalist saw it. Uh, and he directly and explicitly lied while wiping the sweat off of his head. He looked guilty as hell. But because he said it under oath, right, everybody believed him. When you do something like that, uh, this same apparatus of power uh, that we talk about in all these other contexts becomes immediately and intensely focused on discrediting you. Now, this is not about, oh, whoa, me, boo-hoo, they've said bad things about me. That comes with the territory, right? We can't complain about that. If you're not prepared to be called bad names uh, about something that you believe in, well, you don't believe it very much. 
I believe in these things enough to take those risks, you know, to be called those names. And I think a lot of people do. And I think we have to care about the same issues enough to be skeptical of the claims from people in power. Right. I'm not pro-government. I'm not anti-government. Uh, the people who are truly anti-government, they actually criticize me. They say I am super pro-government uh, because the fact that, look, I am uh, to some extent uh, a person who can't, you know, the leopard can't lose its spots completely. Uh, I grew up in a federal family. My father worked for the military for 30 years before he retired. My grandfather left as an admiral, and then he went and worked for the FBI. Uh, my mother worked for the federal courts. She still does, which is kind of ironic, uh, seeing as how they're the ones trying to jail me. But, you know, I followed in these same footsteps. When I grew up, I was like, what am I going to do? Uh, I realized I was going to go do what I believed was right, what was sort of the family business, and try to serve my country to the best of my capability. When everybody else was protesting the Iraq war, I signed up for it because when everybody was going, oh, the government's lying, the government's lying, I didn't believe it. I thought it didn't make sense. They didn't have a reason to lie to us. It would be so foolish and self-destructive and short-sighted to sacrifice vital public trust in our institutions for the shortest of short-term gains in popular support for a war that we wouldn't really need uh, if it turned out that Saddam Hussein didn't actually have weapons of mass destruction and wasn't actually secretly plotting to destroy the United States. But over time, right, as I went to more and more senior levels within government to higher and higher level of clearances, uh, I found out that, you know, the sad truth of the world is that every structure of power will abuse those powers, right? Uh, and this is because of the nature of politics, uh, unfortunately, in our society. So long as it's a contest for power rather than a cooperative institution where we build together, uh, but instead are competing against each other, uh, they're going to think there's going to be winners and losers, and I better be the winner at all costs. Uh, and that means, unfortunately, uh, sometimes they lie. And that was a very hard lesson for me to learn. But what that means for me today is not the government is the final enemy, right? That we got to tear down the NSA. Now, I don't advocate for that. What I say is that we have to have the most honest uh, system that we can. We have to have the most fair system we can. And the best way that we've figured out to do this so far is by asserting, establishing, and defending individual and collective rights. Uh, and, and that's what I really focus on is not, you know, is the government good or bad or is this, that, there is, look, we've got laws on the books. And if we're going to have them, the government more than anybody else must abide by them because they are in their privileged position today, at least, uh, the example that we are all supposed to follow. If they can't be held accountable to the rules, then how can we ask the citizen to be? Got it. Has, has anything changed since your leaks? Uh, there has, you know, and this is uh, another thing that doesn't get a lot of press uh, because, uh, again, the, these people who do have a lot of influence and power don't want to have that conversation, right? Uh, we've had the most significant intelligence reforms in the last 40 years uh, since the Church Commission in the wake of the 2013 surveillance revelations. Uh, when it first happened, right, uh, we all saw Barack Obama come out uh, in his very charismatic manner, right? He's a gifted, talented speaker. Uh, and I think he did, more often than not, uh, try to do the right thing, but it's a tough job, right? And there's a lot of pressures. And when you start getting feared up by these agencies, it's easy to make mistakes. He said, look, we've drawn the right balance uh, between your rights 
uh, and sort of our, our surveillance programs. But by January 2014, he had appointed two independent commissions uh, to find out the truth of these allegations, right? When we talk about investigations today, uh, should we have them? Should we not have them? Well, he appointed two independent commissions. Uh, now, he appointed the people on the commissions uh, that were not friends of civil liberties, right? Uh, these were individuals like the former deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He also put a couple token representatives uh, of, of the good guys on there, uh, even if they were some of the more conservative members. But the results of these was extraordinary. They said the program that they, uh, they were specifically commissioned to inspect, which was, I don't want to get too deep in the details, but what's called Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Uh, it was basically the statute that underlied America's first uh, and longest running mass surveillance program. Uh, and they said, look, this program has been operating for more than 10 years. You know, George Bush put it into service without asking the courts, without asking the Congress, just sort of secretly on the sly. Uh, we've tailored around the edges, put it on different legal grounds over the years, uh, but it's always been happening. Uh, and despite more than 10 years of operation, it has never thwarted a single terrorist plot in the United States. It's never saved a single life. Moreover, not only that, they said it had never made a concrete difference. And these are their words. This is a direct quote. A concrete difference in a single counterterrorism investigation. Now, to his credit, uh, he came out in 2014, the State of the Union address, and said, while he could never condone what I did in revealing these programs, he said that this conversation that I started made us stronger as a nation. Uh, and I agree with him on this. He called for Congress uh, to end that provision of the law uh, and to create a new one. Uh, they actually did, and this Congress doesn't get anything done, right? And the courts, which previously had been afraid to look at these programs, uh, because they didn't want to be criticized for being soft on terrorism. When they reviewed them instead of secret courts, uh, they said these programs were not only unlawful uh, and had never been lawful for any point in their operation. They were likely unconstitutional. They said they were, quote, Orwellian in scope, right? Talking about George Orwell's 1984. It was creating a kind of America that was fundamentally contrary to the values of an open society. This by itself is just talking about one program, one change, one tiny reform, uh, one corner of the conversation that's happened since 2013. And I would argue that by itself uh, is more than enough to say there was a change. But at the same time, I would argue it's not enough. And the conversation that we're still having today is only the beginning of a larger and more substantive reform that should ultimately result in the end of mass surveillance in the United States. And if we do it right around the world. Now, some people think of you as a hero. Some people think of you as a traitor. How do you think of yourself? I'm not a hero or a traitor. I'm a citizen, the same as everyone else. And I, you know, I think this kind of uh, rhetoric, it's popular. I understand it. It's, you know, it's, it's seductive. We want to label everything. But again, this, this gets back to actually why I'm, I've always been so interested in your story. We have some similarities, uh, despite our differences, right? We were both very young men living lives that we were quite satisfied with. And then through one short trip, right, whether it's a, a drive down to Ferguson or to a protest uh, or a trip to Hong Kong to meet with journalists behind closed doors, it changed our mission in life. But the central thing for me is that there are no heroes, 
right? When, when you want to look at somebody and say, oh, this guy did all these risky things. He gave up so much. Wonderful. Let's applaud him. You're distancing them from your own circumstances, from your own life. You're otherizing them in a way that disempowers you. Uh, what happens is you end up living in, in a kind of uh, circumstance where you look on TV, you look at movies, you see all these great uh, decisions and choices uh, that are inspiring, but they're not yours. And you go, I could never do that. These people are different. There is no other kind of person. There is no uh, heroic spirit or heroic life. There are only heroic acts, heroic choices, heroic decisions that last only an instant, right? And the same person who makes a great decision can make a bad decision. What we've got to do is look at our circumstances in our life, the things around us at every moment, and think, what can I do right now to make things better? And it's hard, right? We are all, none of us are perfect. None of us are, again, the, these saintly figures. Now, we've got responsibilities. We've got jobs. You know, we've got things that we need to do. We've got people we get, need to take care of. But when you look around, you realize there's a level of inhumanity and incivility injustice, and injustice uh, that we can all tolerate, that we can deal with, that we can absorb, that we can bear and do nothing about, right? Whether it's just walking past the homeless person on the street and turning your head going, not today, I can't handle that. And then there's one step further where you realize not just that you can do something, not just that you have the right to do something, that you have the duty to do something. You have an obligation to do it, that it's the right thing to do and that you can actually make an impact. You can make a difference. And I think it's looking for those moments in life that make us truly citizens rather than subjects of a larger society, whether that's a government, whether that's a community, whether that's whatever. If you want to be a part of something, it's not enough to believe in something. You actually have to stand for it. Now, there's sort of this vein of uh, like being a conscientious objector, right? What does it mean to be somebody who feels like they have a responsibility to the larger picture, who works inside of a system that might not be doing the right thing by people. Like, what do you think that responsibility looks like now in the Trump administration, given that every day there's shocking things that happen that we never imagined? Like, I'm actually surprised that his taxes haven't leaked, right? With all of the, <laughs> like, with everything else that's happened. Like, I don't know. I, I'm not that I'm like advocating for somebody to hack the IRS. I am shocked about that. So what is your, what do you think about, you know, cause some people's critique of you is that you put people in harm's way, right? That like, that your act was not a selfless act, that it actually endangered the lives of people, right? That it, which is why people, some people think of you as a traitor. Like what is the balance there um, is the first question. And I am interested in your thoughts on his taxes. Yeah, that, you know, it, it's it's a great question. It's a fair one. Uh, again, it gets back to what are the actual facts? And this is why investigations and things like that matter. We, You can't have a public debate without public evidence, right? The, the first rule of any kind of rational uh, logic is that that which is asserted without evidence must be dismissed without evidence, because that's the only way we can actually come to an understanding of something. Now, there have been a lot of allegations about things like that that come from the very same uh, officials who were exposed as violating the rights of everyone in the United States. Uh, not just the rights of Americans, right, but everybody else around the world. And we've got to remember, 95% of the world's population lives beyond the borders uh, of home. Now, so they go, all right, this puts people in harm's way. Uh, you know, there's going to be blood on their hands. All the journalists that are involved in this, Edward Snowden specifically, uh, these are bad guys, right? But we're not living in 2013 anymore. This is the year 2017. 
And if that is the case, why is it that the government has never been able to show any evidence whatsoever? And this is after more than two and a half years of investigation, millions of dollars spent specifically to investigate me uh, and my work uh, in publishing these classified mass surveillance programs in partnership with journalists, right? Because I never published a single document uh, on my own. I've never made anything public directly. It only went to journalists. They go, we can't. We don't have that. There's nothing like that. But we think, you know, maybe it could have happened. Now, on the other hand, we have President Barack Obama's report, right, that says, well, actually, these programs that he revealed never saved a single life. And if that's the case, right, if mass surveillance isn't actually saving lives and we can't show that anybody's hurt, right, there's never people are like, oh, he revealed the names of covert agents or whatever. That literally did not happen. Uh, There's nobody behind enemy lines or whatever that got capped uh, because of this stuff. Uh, And that's in the public record, right? Congress themselves wrote a scathing report about me. uh, And the worst things that they could find out about me were that uh, they said I dropped out of high school. Great detective work, guys. Uh, They said, I didn't actually get a GED. I lied about it, which turned out not to be true. Fortunately, I still had a copy of my GED test, which I gave to a journalist. And they showed, "Okay, well, we got that one wrong. And then this was this was their capstone, right? Their touchstone achievement that when I was going to speak uh, with journalists, you know, uh, the most trusted names in news in the United States, who later won the Pulitzer Prize for public service, uh, the highest prize in American journalism uh, for this reporting, that I lied to my boss about why I was leaving. I said I was going to see the doctor. I had a sick day. Uh, And in fact, I was meeting with journalists. They got me on that. It's true. I faked a sick day. But if that's the evidence they have, not that anybody got hurt, we shouldn't necessarily believe these kind of things. And this gets into that larger, uh, larger conversation of, all right, well, what should we do? How do we measure these things? And ultimately, our allegiance has to be to the facts. Rather than talking about the theoretical risks of journalism in a free and open society, journalists might make mistakes, right? They might publish something that is dangerous. Even if it didn't happen, which we know is the case now, it could have happened. And so they pose it on that basis. What we're saying is that we can't have, we can't afford a conversation about the concrete harms of their programs and policies that limited, reduced, or abraded Americans' rights and the rights of people around the world. That is a fundamentally authoritarian and un-American position to take, but it may be uh, that that's becoming increasingly popular. It is this kind of of dynamic, a, a deference to authority, a deference to law, that is greater than one's uh, allegiance to morality that results in the kind of world that we see growing around us today, right? We have to ask ourselves at every moment, to what do we owe a greater allegiance, to law, or to justice. Uh, And I would argue that when we talk about things like Trump's tax returns, right, uh, the greater crime actually is that we, the public, cannot see what is actually going on uh, with the finances of the most powerful member of our society who shapes our laws, but increasingly appears to be unaccountable to them. Uh, It is not enough to say something is simply legal and that's enough. No, no. What matters is if it is legal and moral, right? If it is legal and responsible, uh, particularly when you're not a private citizen, right? You're allowed to have your skeletons, but you're a public official who wields extraordinary influence. Now, if that is the case, then why hasn't the government pardoned you? Like if you didn't put people in harm's way and you think about Obama, President Obama just pardoned 
Chelsea Manning, who will be released shortly, then why haven't they pardoned you? It's a great question. Uh, I would say, uh, and of course, I'm not the expert on this. I don't actually know what their decisions were behind closed doors. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, sort of the expert class, the elite class who write about these things, who have friends in the White House, they say it's about precedent. They say it doesn't matter whether what I did was right or wrong. It doesn't matter uh, whether what I did benefited American society, whether it defended our rights, whether the courts agreed uh, that the program that I revealed uh, was unlawful or not. The only thing that matters is what will the next person who sees something like this do. They are more concerned about being able to defend, assert uh, and establish, sort of entrench and defend the government's secrecy power, right? We call this uh, in the political science sense, the state secrets privilege. The government's ability to say, look, right or wrong, this is something we don't want people to know. And because of that, we're gonna keep it secret. And if anybody tells this secret, whether it's to the American people, whether it's to journalists, whether it's to anybody else, right? They're going to jail for a very long time. If the president pardoned me, uh, they argue, uh, even though I would say this is not particularly persuasive because pardons are not guaranteed, they're not reliable, they don't set any precedent, that it would inspire more people to come forward. It would inspire more people to reveal uh, information that government would rather the public not know. Uh, and so it's quite understandable from the government's position uh, why they might do this. But I would argue this is precisely why we see uh, so much secret wrongdoing in government today. Uh, we have never had a moment where the public's access to critical private facts within government has been more important. We don't know whether Trump's tax return exonerates him or whether it indicts him. Uh, the same thing for the FBI. When we think about what happened, James Comey was just fired yesterday. If that is the case, right, I can guarantee you from having worked in government, there are people in the FBI right now. There are people in the White House right now, the Department of Justice right now, who know things that the American people not just deserve to know, but need to know in order to actually hold the reins of government and guide the future of our society. And they're thinking exactly the things that I thought before I came forward, before I crossed that line. I need to wait for somebody else, right? I need to wait for, for somebody else to do this for me, to carry this weight, so I don't have to do it. But the problem is when you realize the consequences are so great, you eventually reach a point where society is going, the only time you're going to get the truth is when somebody throws themselves in the volcano in order to deliver it, right? If they're willing to light a match and burn their life to the ground. And if you make people martyr themselves to tell you the truth, very soon you'll live in a world where the truth is not available. And because the truth is not available, it no longer really seems to matter. I say that we need to protect whistleblowers, right? We need to protect people who are revealing even uncomfortable facts, even embarrassing facts about the wrongdoing in our government, right? There is this relationship that has traditionally existed uh, in the United States uh, between the press uh, and the public and the government and the sources of journalism, right? Nowadays, we call them whistleblowers. We used to just call them journalistic sources. And we know that the current White House uh, has a very aggressive adversarial relationship with the press. You know, uh, Trump says he wants to open up libel laws so we can sue newspapers and win a lot of money. Uh, that's great. You know, whether you're for or against that, 
This is changing that traditional relationship. Whistleblowers, the sources, right, who, who are working in government at the FBI right now, and the only reason the New York Times has anything to write about, they are the roots of the garden of our democracy that informs our voting decisions, right? Journalists are the gardeners. They cultivate, they produce sources, they keep them uh, in a productive manner. And the stories that they produce, that the public enjoys, they are the fruit. And if the public, you know, if the president, if anybody else, if the White House goes, look, you know, I understand uh, why he did this. I don't agree with it. The courts might say it was a good thing to do, but I can't do it. What they're ultimately saying is this is a problem we're going to leave for the other day. And we're just going to see how those roots do on their own. I understand that, right? I don't agree with it, but I understand the logic behind it. What I argue is that when you do this for long enough, eventually those roots are going to die. The tree will no longer be there. The gardeners will no longer have anything to work with. And ultimately, we will be left hungry. Now, does that mean that do you stand by the the leaks of Clinton's emails during the campaign? I mean, I know you obviously didn't leak them, but do you think that was a good thing for democracy, too? <laughs> Well, so I mean, those weren't, yeah, again, that's not mine at all. I'm not WikiLeaks, which is a surprise to some people. Some people think I'm the leader of WikiLeaks. I'm not. That's a different person than Julian Assange. And, you know, this is a very complicated case uh, in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of politically charged opinions about it one way or another. What I would say here is that just because something is published doesn't mean it's important, doesn't mean it's newsworthy. However, every major newspaper in the United States did feel that these emails were newsworthy. Uh, they did follow them up. They did investigate them. They did report on them. I don't think personally it swung the election. It actually seems like uh, most of the polling people think that uh, the FBI director's statement had more of a swing because it shifted the polling just in the final days of the election. Uh, but the bottom line is our enemy should never be truth, Right. Despite the emails, no matter how they were produced, no matter how they were provided, even if you hate the people, right, even if the Russians were behind them, as is alleged, and as there is at least circumstantial evidence to support, were produced in the worst possible way. If it's true information, authentic information that actually informs the public, uh, we may not agree with it, right, but we can't say this is the crime of the century either. Everybody's talking about the, the political impact of the Clinton thing, which is important, right, but I think it uh, overlooks something that's of similar importance, right? Critical importance that reaches more than just the campaign. Uh, and this is the idea that, look, uh, whether you're you know, some kind of arch Republican that was like, oh my goodness, Hillary's emails, this is manna from heaven, I've been waiting all year for this, uh, or whether you're somebody who was completely against this, that said this was a violation you know, uh, of people's privacy rights, we shouldn't have seen what was happening, uh, it doesn't matter uh, if there was truthful information in there, material that actually does have some electoral impact, look, we've got to focus uh, on the fact that it was a crime to steal these emails. When we look at these from both sides, there's a central idea here, which is why was this possible in the first place? Right? We're talking about uh, the Democratic National Committee, which is a well-funded, well-organized uh, elite institution we're talking about some of the top uh, political advisors in the United States, individuals like John Podesta, and their emails getting broken into 
by pretty low sophistication attacks when we're talking about phishing here, which by the way, phishing is the threat that people, ordinary people should be most worried about. You get an email, it sends you to a fake Google, you know, Gmail login page or Facebook login page, looks precisely identical, very hard to tell apart, even for experts if it's done uh, to the highest level. You enter the password, and now if you don't have two-factor authentication enabled on your account, they can log right in, get all your stuff. That's the kind of thing that happened. What we're dealing with is the greatest computer security crisis uh, in our history. We have never been in a moment uh, where we have had more uh, regular, more predictable, more routine computer intrusions and compromises than we do today. Uh, we shouldn't condemn people for falling for a phishing attack, for falling for a fake login page. Uh, we should more be upset that these kind of things are possible in the first place. When we talk about mass surveillance, when we talk about email hacks, when we talk about all of this, we're getting back to that central problem of insecurity. Hacking and surveillance are two sides of the same coin. You just call it hacking if it's the other guy doing it, right? You call it surveillance if it's your guy doing it. The idea here is that this, that the moment that we're living in right now is the atomic moment for computer scientists. In the last century, nuclear physicists had to grapple with this new idea, this new technology that they were uh, discovering and unleashing upon the world, which was meant for an unmitigated good purpose, right? They saw a source of potential energy that could be unlocked. But a hop, skip, and a jump of a few years later, this energy is being released for violent purposes, for purposes of control, uh, for purposes of contest, right? Uh, whether you're on the side of the people dropping atomic bombs or whether you're on the side that's having atomic bombs dropped on you, when you look from the perspective of the scientists, these were outcomes that were not predicted, that were not accounted for, and this is why so many lives are so suddenly lost. We need to be thinking today about this fundamental connection between surveillance and insecurity. The only reason surveillance and hacking are so effective is because it is so much easier for offense than it is for defense. Uh, today, it is more difficult to protect your communications, to simply log into your Gmail account, uh, to check your messages on Facebook on a consistent basis over a course of years than it is to actually send a false message uh, that could hack somebody's computer, allow you to go in, rifle through all of their things. And this has to change because we see uh, people like the FBI director that was just fired, James Comey, uh, arguing against encryption, right? Uh, they go, look, good or bad, uh, we need to be able to break into people's phones. We need to be able to read everybody's messages. I want to know what you're doing on Facebook because you might be bad. And we can understand there are bad people on Facebook, right? They, they have smartphones too. Uh, this kind of thing is understandable. But at the same time, when they're saying this, they're weakening security for everybody. The same decisions that allow the NSA to be so effective today are the exact same decisions that permitted Hillary Clinton's emails to be hacked in the first place. Our love affair with offensive capability in the realm of computer security, right? Defeating computer security means that anybody can do it. If we can break in, so can our enemies. And until we look at that from a different direction and realize that we are actually the most connected nation on earth, right? We are well-developed. Uh, we have an internet-based economy. 
we have more to lose from hacking than our adversaries do. Yeah, it's great if we can hack Russia. Yeah, it's great if we can hack China. Yeah, it's great if we can hack anybody we want. The problem is, if they can hack us too, it's providing a greater advantage for them than it is for us. And that has to change. If we don't do that, the same techniques, the same methods of technology that we're using today to protect your cell phone communications, again, that Gmail login, are basic, basic encryption techniques. And if they are not enough to protect us, if we do not improve these, if we do not make unbreakably secure communications, the problem is this. The same methods that we're using to protect email accounts, which are clearly not enough today, are the same methods that are being used to keep the dams closed uh, and the lights on over New York City. If we don't fix our security problem because we're so in love with surveillance, we're not making society safer. We're putting it in danger. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. So we're coming to the end. This is uh, two simple... I mean, these aren't, I guess, simple. One is, are you afraid for your safety, Right. Because to most people, you are like holed up in a in a room with, I don't know, black paint on the walls and you never <laughs> go outside is how I think a lot of people think about you. And you don't use a phone for safety reasons. You were on Google Hangout now. The image of that conjures is like a, is something we've seen in a TV show. But it seems like you actually do go out in public, I think. And you, you don't just sit in the room all day, but I don't know. So I'd love to know if you're afraid for your safety. And then do you think you'll ever come back? Do you think you'll ever get a chance to come back? I, I do think I'll come back. That, that's the first one. Uh, so I, I can do that simply, right? Politics change over time. Uh, and whenever we have a prominent American whistleblower come forward, for example, uh, Daniel Ellsberg revealed top secret information, actually military information uh, about the war in Vietnam that showed the government intentionally lied us into the war at the cost of untold numbers of American lives, uh, of course, and of people in Vietnam and the surrounding region as well. He was castigated. They called him a Russian spy, a communist plotter, all the worst things they say about me. They said the same thing about him. 
But time has a way of exonerating people when the charges against them are false. And this is why it's kind of so interesting uh, that we see the Trump White House seems so allergic to investigation, condemning it all the time and trying to stave it off, do anything to thwart it. Whereas when Congress was investigating me, right, you didn't see me calling for an end to these investigations. And when the report came out, like the worst things that they had on me actually made me feel pretty good about my choices. There, there's that. But then when we get to the safety uh, angle, right, we don't know what the threats against me are truly like because they're classified. I like to believe that Barack Obama, uh, for all my disagreements with him, is not the kind of man uh, who is going to sign an order to have me killed. Uh, the president does have this authority, right? We may not like it, uh, but he's already had American citizens killed far from any battlefield uh, during his tenure. Uh, Barack Obama had Anwar al-Awlaki uh, killed in a drone strike. His uh, 16-year-old son was killed two weeks later. Both American citizens, right, without any court order or anything like that. I don't think he would do that uh, in my case. Maybe he did. Maybe we'll find out about 30 years from now. Would I be, you know, uh, acted against, retaliated against in some way if the CIA could get to me? Probably. Uh, that's, that's my belief. Uh, how that would manifest itself, you know, I honestly don't know. Now we have a new administration that has a radically different way of looking at this. Uh, I've been a prominent critic of Donald Trump. Uh, I expect to continue that. I've been a prominent critic people don't know this, of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government's human rights policy. These are not uh, probably the safest choices for someone living in exile under the circumstances uh, that I am. But when you ask me, do I worry about my safety? The answer is no, for a very simple reason. When you can be satisfied with the choices that you've made, you can go to bed every night not worrying about what happens tomorrow, instead looking forward to the opportunities you have. If I get hit by a bus, uh, if I get a plane dropped on me, uh, or, you know, if there's a Russian bear driving the bus that hits me, uh, or, you know, a CIA officer, I can be satisfied that I've done the best I can for as long as I can. And that's enough for me. Now, in that vein, and you sort of touched on this already, but there's some people who don't believe you because they think you're just a pawn of the Russian government, right? That, like, that you are just a mouthpiece. Is there a, how do you, what's your response to that? Well, again, you know, the best thing when you look at this is go, is there any evidence of that at all? And the answer is no, right? Uh, again, Congress was dying for something like this. They were funding the CIA, the NSA, the FBI. They had complete access to all of our classified records, and they couldn't find that. So if that's the case, right, there's no evidence for it, and there's only allegations, it's probably more likely than not that the allegations aren't true. Now, when you compound that basic likelihood with what we do have evidence of, uh, which is the fact that I have publicly, prominently, and repeatedly uh, criticized the Russian government. If I'm a pawn, I'm very bad at it, right? Uh, I'm costing them more. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what someone's intentions are. Let's say I'm the worst person on earth, right? I'm some double secret agent. Uh, look at the results, the impacts, the effects of my work and judge me on that basis, not why you think I did it. Uh, and if you look at the sum total uh, of the work of all of the organizations that I've been involved with, whether it's the American Civil Liberties Union, whether it's the Freedom of the Press Foundation, we're clearly trying to make things better. Maybe it won't be enough. Uh, maybe you won't agree with me. Uh, maybe you'll work against me. That's okay. That's what democracy is about. But more than anything, let's find the facts and go to an honest conversation. 
And briefly, the last time we communicated, it seemed like you had started to think about the police in a in a deeper way since the protest started. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Like, what have you uh, either learned in the past three years? What have you thought about differently, especially given how much you know about the government? And I don't think all of the things you've that you released to the press have been released publicly. So it seems like you, you know, you have more secrets or there are more secrets from what you released. So I'd love to know about the policing and what that, uh, how you've grown in that regard or, or your understanding in the past three years. Yeah. I mean, when you look at how I grew up in my relation to the police, it's probably very different from a lot of your other uh, listeners. You know, I grew up in a, a fairly quiet suburb after my family moved out of a pretty poor area. Um, and, you know, when I was there, we would have, you know, like the D.A.R.E. program in school and everything like that. And, man, I just ate that stuff up. Uh, I've never tried pot, right? I've never been drunk. Uh, people don't know that I, I don't drink. Uh, I'm, I'm about as square as square gets. Uh, the D.A.R.E. officer, you know, sometimes would see me walking home from school. He'd offer me a ride. And I'd be like, oh, man, this is cool. I'm in the police car. Uh, that was an exciting thing, right? That wasn't a scary thing. It was only through experience and through talking to other people that I saw that there are other ways of looking at the world and that we need to be aware of those different perspectives, those different experiences, and the inequality of application of these institutions and, and their, their gaze more than anything else, right? Uh, surveillance is not about observation. Surveillance is not about witnessing. Uh, surveillance is fundamentally about power. Uh, it's about control. It's about knowing what's happening and being able to shape outcomes. Uh, and when we think about this in the context of national security agencies and things like that, these things matter. People are killed. People are imprisoned. Uh, people are judged. Uh, reputations are ruined on the basis of judgments that are made by secret and unaccountable agencies. doesn't matter whether it's the NSA. doesn't matter whether it's the FBI, right? But when we take a step back from that and look at the average person's life, the local police actually have far more influence and likelihood of conflict than, you know, the, these great power organizations that are playing all over the world. Uh, the threats you have to worry about are closest to home. And for women in the audience, you know, uh, intimate partner violence, where you've got a spouse who's, you know, grabbing your phone and saying, let me look at this, unlock your phone, I need to see who you're talking to, uh, and taking some action on the basis of this. These are much more pervasive threats that are much more immediate. They're much more present and aware and in the moment. And these are the contexts that haven't crashed into my life so directly because of who I am, how I grew up and how uh, I exist today. But these are the problems that I'm starting to look at more and more. Uh, and hopefully together we can find a way to solve. Well, it looks like we're coming to a close here, Ed. This is it's always interesting to connect, and we both have been surveilled by the government very differently. Yours is at a scale that is uh, incomparable to, to most people. Um, it's interesting to talk about these security issues, especially in the context of Trump. You know, you have said publicly before that this is less about one person uh, with the president, but it's more about an institution. It also seems like in this moment, this one person seems to be an aberration from other people that have been in the role. So should we be more afraid than we have normally been about surveillance? And, you know, there are people who say that, like, this is just a consequence of safety, right? That, like, if 
if the government is supposed to keep people safe, if that is one of its central responsibilities, then that means that they will have to infringe on some sense of privacy, that that is a part of the deal. How does that resonate with you? So this is the most popular argument in favor of surveillance. And we need to remember quickly where it comes from. Uh, This is the nothing to hide argument, right? If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Uh, And this actually originates with Nazi propaganda and and Joseph Goebbels. People don't know that. And it's kind of alarming that we have people uh, repeating in in the United States, prominent political officials using this kind of language. Uh, And they may be entirely unaware of its origin. They may actually know and not care because it's useful, it's effective. Uh, But then we need to think about the actual reality. Is it true? Well, the first thing is that privacy isn't about something to hide. Privacy is about something to protect. It's about a free and open society where people can be themselves. They can have their own ideas. They can be different, uh, hold unique beliefs, and not be judged for them unless they choose to try to impose them on society, right? To share them with the other people around them. Otherwise, we have the right to be left alone, uh, which is traditionally how privacy is defined. But it's more than that, right? Privacy is about, privacy is the fountainhead from which all other rights derive. When you think about freedom of speech, you know, if you don't have privacy, it doesn't mean very much because you can't determine what it is that you want to say. You can't test it out safely among friends, develop and sort of sharpen that idea before you introduce it to the wider world where it can actually compete successfully. Freedom of religion doesn't mean very much if you simply inherit something but can't try out and figure out what you actually believe without fear of embarrassment uh, or retaliation or persecution by people around you who want to say, you know, why are you turning your back on this, that, or the other? Uh, It comes down to every right that we have, whether it's freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, uh, whether it's the right to due process, uh, you know, equal protection. All of these things are a universe that says something fundamental. Privacy is the right to the self. Without privacy, you don't belong to you. You belong to society, right? They have a claim on you, but you can't really have anything for yourself. It's baked into our language. Uh, Private property, right, means that you can have it, you alone. When we start to do away with these things, we're doing away with an entire respect for the individual, for the community for the differences between us. And why does that matter, right? Why is this so important? You might go, look, I don't care about that stuff. That's great, that's wonderful, but it's abstract bullshit, honestly, uh, because there's nothing interesting about me. Government's never gonna come after me. I'm never gonna have an encounter with the police officer. Uh, I'm a member of the majority. And that may be. Now that's probably the most antisocial argument that you can make, but there's something else, right? And that gets back to the fact that everybody is different in some way or another, when you look deep enough, or you might become different because the majority changes. Beliefs change over time. And if you are only looking out for the majority, right, for the people who occupy positions of privilege, you're not looking out for rights at all. You're you're forgiving them or you're uh, giving them up. You're foreclosing on the value of rights because rights don't actually matter for the truly powerful, right? For the people who occupy the position of majority because they are the ones who set the laws that other people could be running foul of. They are the ones who are deciding what is popular and what's not. It's the people who are different, even a little bit, right? It's the people who are minorities, the people who are a little bit vulnerable, a little bit strange, a little bit unusual, 
a little bit special, a little bit unique. They are the ones that stand out, right? They are the ones who get sanded down. They're the nail that sticks out. But these people, why they matter, why we protect them, they're the agents of progress. When we think about the long you know, uh, history of our societies, the civilizations, the terrible wrongdoing we've done in the past, the injustices that face us today, all of these things have begun, the changes have begun as a contest against the orthodoxy of the moment, right? Uh, as a contest against what was popular, in many cases, against what was legal, right? We don't have to think back very far to think about something that was entirely wrong, but also entirely legal. And if people weren't able to develop the ideas to overturn that law, to threaten the status quo, to cast it down, and to reshape our society through means of political subversion that established a new majority, we would still be living in those bad old days, right? Uh, so if you want to have a better world, you better look out for privacy because that's how you get it. Now, as we close, the last question is a question I ask everybody, is what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that has stayed with you? <laughs> you know, this is actually going to be much more mundane than most people's, but it's stuck with me even throughout the year. You know, I've always had pretty strongly held opinions. You might be able to tell from the way I talk. I'm a, a passionate guy. I had a boss once who told me, uh, I showed him the draft of an email I was sending up the chain uh, that was really going to rattle some cages because I saw somebody doing something wrong uh, and I wanted to try to do something about it. He said, oh, you better not send that email like that. That's going to get you in trouble. Instead, you should save that email as a draft, send it the next day. Well, I didn't do that. I sent that email and that got me in all kinds of trouble. He was right. And I have gone on with that again uh, and again, and that's been useful to me throughout my life. So I would recommend that. But I would say that in an entirely different way to people. You shouldn't have to think about what your communications are going to look like to third parties today. You shouldn't have to think about uh, what your phone call is going to sound like to somebody sitting behind a desk in a dark, smoky room. Uh, you shouldn't have to think about what an FBI agent's going to make of a text message that you send at a protest. But in today's world, there are many circumstances where you would be well served by doing precisely that. So think about what that's going to look like. And before you hit send, keep that as a draft, even if it's just for a minute, and think it over. And Ed, that makes me, I know I said that was the last question. Is there really like a call center somewhere where somebody is like listening to everybody's call or is that just what we see on TV or is that stoking paranoia? No. So that's the, the idea of a call center of everybody, you know, listening to Americans conversations is fantasy, but this is done by machines, right? Uh, we do have call centers in, uh, for areas, this is already uh, published, you know, this isn't uh, news, in the war zones, right? Uh, we've shown that there are, are programs even far from war zones in places like the Bahama, Bahamas, uh, where the intelligence community was intercepting every single phone call for an entire country, right? They didn't care who the criminals were. They didn't care uh, who the ordinary citizens were. They wanted to collect it all, right? Collect it all is the motto of the National Security Agency. They do collect it all to the best of their ability, right? Uh, machines are now increasingly being trained to understand the semantics of the associations between people, to develop what's called a social graph uh, of who you talk to, uh, for how long, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, this isn't done 
uh, for everyone in every context, right? I, I don't want you to think that when you pick up the phone, right, the NSA is listening. But please understand that we have had members of the United States Congress write to the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of the National Security Agency, and say, is the NSA collecting my phone records? Am I in the database too? And the heads of these agencies refuse to answer. And the reason for this, and I can tell you this, this is public record, right? It's well established, but the government still denies it to this day, is that bulk collection, which is the government's euphemism for mass surveillance, affects everybody, right? We're all in these databases. The government doesn't even deny this directly. What they do is they say, we're not listening to your phone calls. We're not reading your emails. Uh, we're not going through your web history online, trying to read it every day. And more often than not, this is true, right? But don't forget that we are still having those communications being collected. They are still landing in the bucket. And the reason that they do this is to build what, in effect, is a kind of surveillance time machine. This is a longer conversation. Um, but their argument, their belief, is that if we allow these conversations to pass by, if we allow these uh, internet communications to go by without catching them, right, we not, may not be able to read them later when we want to, when this person does become interesting, right? When suddenly D. Ray McKesson, you know, we want to look at DeRay's communications. We need them in the bucket already uh, by the time we get the warrant so that we can go back and actually look at them then. This is the way the bulk collection works, right? You collect it all in advance. Then in theory, you're supposed to get some kind of legal order if you're an American. If you're not an American, it's a free for all. You can, uh, they can use what's called reasonable articulable suspicion, uh, which is a very low legal standard. It's basically a gut feeling that you can write down. Uh, and they can just rummage through everything that you do online. I did this personally at NSA. This was my job. Uh, I didn't do this for Americans in the United States. I could see Americans' communications. I did see Americans' communications every day uh, in my job. And we know this is happening. Congressmen are still protesting about this today. At the end of the year, uh, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act is up for reauthorization, which explicitly authorizes the NSA and every other intelligence community partner in the United States to collect communications from within the United States, as long as they've got only one end foreign, right? Uh, so even if you're just making a phone call to your friend who happens to be in Iceland at the time, uh, it's not just legal for them to collect it. Suddenly it's legal for them to actually start reading it like they say they don't do. Uh, but again, that's a longer conversation. Uh, if you want to have this one, there's a lot more depth, a lot more nuance that we should cover uh, before we go into to those kind of things, uh, because we want to set the best possible understanding for people on mass. Do you like watch TV, Netflix, like, I don't know, listen yeah, to yeah, music? You're uh, young. I, I still watch TV. <laughs> yeah, I, I still watch TV. Uh, not as much as, as I used to, not as much maybe as I'd like. I watch the ordinary stuff. You know, I saw Breaking Bad, I saw Game of Thrones, love both, and The Wire, the old ones. Uh, also new ones. There's a science fiction show called The Expanse that I enjoy quite a bit. Mr. Robot was another recent one. But my day-to-day -day is, is largely now about communication. It's about organizing. It's about developing new tools to keep journalists' communications safe, not just in the United States, right, but in places like Russia, in places like China, where we're not worried about sources getting arrested. We're worried about sources getting killed, right? 
Uh, and this is what my job as president of the Freedom of the Press Foundation is all about. We're trying to develop new technical tools to make sure that when somebody has something the public needs to know, they can not just get it out back to public hands. They can do so safely. They can still live a normal life. Journalists can still do their job. And it's we're no longer throwing people in volcanoes. We don't need a world of martyrs. We need a world of informed citizens. We need an active adversarial press that's going to hold great power to the fullest account, not just of the law, but of the public. You strike me as somebody who would like superheroes. Did you grow up like as a superhero guy? Who didn't? You know, I mean, I don't know. For my generation, I, I, I think uh, I think every kid likes likes superheroes. Uh, but the thing that we got to remember is we don't need superheroes, right? We don't need uh, the extraordinary. We need the ordinary, right? We need everyday heroes. Who are your superheroes, though? I got I I you nailed home the idea of like. There are no heroes and no traitors. There are people. I got that. But who were your superheroes when you were kids? Before you had this more mature understanding of heroes, were you like an X-Men guy or like a Spider-Man guy or a Mighty Mouse guy? <laughs> I mean, I liked all of those guys. Uh, X-Men was, you know, they were on TV back then. Uh, so I think that's what I was uh, directly exposed to. I wasn't actually the type who like had stacks of comic books. Uh, I saw it on TV. So, yeah, it would be X-Men and Spider-Man because... Uh, they were How old are you? I had. Uh, You're I 30. Am now. God, that's a good question. Uh, 33, maybe 34. Gosh, I was 29 uh, when I left. Uh, I was born in 83. So, yeah, I guess I turned 34 this year, quite soon, actually. <laughs> oh, Ed. And if I could ask just one question uh, of you, we've talked about all kinds of things today. Uh, what's going on with James Comey? What's going on with mass surveillance? What's going on with race? Uh, and it all centrally gets back to this question of power and change and the direction that we're moving in society. And this is a weird historical moment, uh, you know, because things are very much in flux. I feel that we're in sort of a fork in the path and there's a, a positive way to look at this and, and sort of a, another way of looking at this. On the one hand, we have this new rise uh, of, of very aggressive, uh, something close to fascism. We have uh, a newfound aggressiveness uh, against the press, you know, painting them as an enemy, right? Uh, we have protesters, uh, patriotic Americans that are being discredited and delegitimized uh, as internal enemies. On the other hand, we have things like the ACLU's membership uh, since the election of Donald Trump has quadrupled. They have four times as many members. Subscriptions to major newspapers have spiked. People are paying attention. They're passionate. They care. They're connected in new ways. When you look at the modern moment, where we're at, and the things that come next, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Oh, I'm optimistic, right? I think that there are, like you said, so many people who – there are more people that want to do good – that know what to do. And I think about hope, again, is this belief that our tomorrows can be better than our todays. And I think that there are so many people who are hopeful. And frankly, I think that the interest in activism and organizing and, and pushing the government to be better has outpaced the organizing infrastructure to capture all the energy. So now what you see is people building that infrastructure very quickly. And I think what we see in this moment is the difference between organization and infrastructure, that, that people no longer have to be a part of an organization to make change, but there does need to be infrastructure. And we've seen incredible organizing models 
like in Ferguson, like in Baltimore, that weren't centered around any organization. No organization started the movement or the protest. People came together and started uh, these things, which is incredible. And I think that we'll see that. I think uh, one of the hard things, frankly, about the the Trump presidency is that there is just so much happening that I think people don't know where to look, right? It's like, do you push the FDA to not have all the TVs on Fox News? Are you upset about Comey being let go? The EPA seems to also be a disaster. Nobody's been appointed in Treasury to deal with taxes, right? There's like just ICE is detaining people. There's a Muslim ban. You know, it's like there's so much happening that I think, you know, people took for granted what it was like when the president only had one or two things a month that were like national things that people protested against as opposed to something every single day that people are pushing against. Uh, so I'm, if I have any worries, I don't want people to get fatigued in this moment. And I want to make sure that we're having the tough conversations. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is that there were, uh, when we talked online, there were people who were either really excited about a conversation or really upset about the fact that we might be talking Uh, But I want to make sure that we have the most robust conversations about what the future can be and the nature of the problem so we can think about how to move forward, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me on and asking the tough questions, you know, because this is the way that we get to the truth of the matter. Well, hopefully we'll have you back on uh, to Pod Save the People at some point. And I appreciate you making time. And I hope that you uh, have a good rest of the week in uh, Russia. You're eight hours behind, right? Or eight hours ahead? Uh, I'm seven hours ahead of Eastern time. Got it. Seven hours ahead. So you're already so close to here, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Wait, have you eaten already? Is this dinner time or is this like the middle? What? So what is that? What time is it? I skipped dinner for you, man. <laughs> this is my dinner. I've never been to Russia. I probably won't make it there anytime soon. Uh, but if I do, guess we'll see each other. See you later, Ed. Yeah. All right. See you then. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the People. We'll be back on the regular schedule starting on Tuesday again. And please rate the podcast. Tell your friends to subscribe and to listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Again, thanks for listening to Pod Save People. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.